So if you are new and joining with us for the first time today, welcome. We're so glad that you have come to worship and learn together with us. And uh, we began a series a couple weeks ago entitled A Year with Jesus. And we're spending a year with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark so that by spending a year with Jesus, we might better cultivate a deeper life with Jesus. And what's interesting about the text that we're looking at today is that the passage that we're in today actually covers, get this, one 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. Remember, several years ago, I was preaching on this text, and uh, I was talking to my daughters about it in the morning, and, um, and uh, so I said, hey, we're going to look at this passage. It covers one day in the life of Jesus. And, and, and one of my daughters said, well, does, does it tell us what he had for breakfast? And I said, well, it's not that detailed. And then um, I asked my daughter, Lucy, who was like eight or nine at the time, I said, um, I said, what do you imagine Jesus did throughout his day? And she said, well, I imagine that Jesus got up early and he gave his disciples some chores to do, and, uh, which I thought was great. Actually, the day with Jesus doesn't begin with chores. It instead begins in a synagogue in a little seaside village called Capernaum. Look at what the text says. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So Capernaum was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and it had a population of about 1,500 people, and so it's kind of a moderately sized city of the day. And uh, Simon and Andrew, interestingly, were actually born in Bethsaida, but they moved to Capernaum because it was a real bustling fishing village, you know? And so they moved there and made their home there. And a um, couple little, I, I think, interesting facts about Capernaum. So uh, this is a, a picture of an archaeological dig where Capernaum is, which is just fascinating. The ruins that you're looking at there date back to the first century, to the very time of Christ. And uh, you see the oct- octagonal-shaped uh, building over there. That's actually built over the ruins of what is believed to be Simon and Andrew's house, which is just fascinating. Now, some of you think the Super Bowl is exciting, but this, this is way better, right? Um, so, uh, so this was normally just this bustling fishing village. It was a popular trade route. Uh, they had Roman soldiers stationed there, had a thriving, prosperous fishing industry. And most days, you know, the market was flooded with people, and they were buying and selling fish and their vegetables, and uh, there, were, there were tax gatherers collecting their taxes. Uh, but not today, because on this day, it's Sabbath. And so on Sabbath, all work ceased, and they headed off to synagogue. And so where we pick up this day in the life of Jesus, he is gone to worship at synagogue. Now, this is um, the ruins of actually a fourth century synagogue in Capernaum. Interestingly, this is built upon an earlier synagogue that dates back to the time of Christ. So it's just fascinating. You can go to Israel today, you can stand in this synagogue, and you'll literally be standing on the very ground where Jesus was preaching and doing ministry in the synagogue on this day, which I just think is super cool. So you're like, well, what was synagogue like anyway? Well, it would begin with the prayers. Sometimes they'd be sung or chanted, and then they would take the scrolls from the law and the prophets, and they'd have them read. And then somebody, maybe a visiting rabbi, would get up and give a teaching, and then it would conclude with a series of benedictions or blessings. 
But today in this small fishing village, uh, it is an exciting morning in synagogue because who is their traveling rabbi? Who is it that gets up to preach? I mean, could you imagine? You go to church and it's not this short guy up to preach. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And here, Jesus gets up and he begins to preach. And notice their response. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It, it, was, uh, it was popular in the world of Jesus for the scribes when they taught to constantly be quoting other scribes. And so they'd read a verse, for example, in the Torah, you shall not cook a goat in its mother's milk, a passage you're all familiar with, I'm sure. And uh, they would say, well, Rabbi Gamaliel says, and then uh, Rabbi Shammai says, and then uh, Rabbi Jacob says, and, and you'd be like, yeah, but what do you say? You know, what do you think about this? Jesus is different than the scribes. He taught with decision he taught decidedly, he, 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 he taught as one with authority, as if the law and the prophets were pointing to him all along, as if he himself was the climax of this Old Testament story all along. And they heard this, and they're just astonished at the authority of this young rabbi from Nazareth. And uh, they're, they're leaning in, and they're just thinking, this is so interesting. I mean, Every day with Jesus was interesting. But on this day, it's going to get even more interesting because look what happens next. In church immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a demonized guy in the synagogue which I guess it turns out that sometimes the demonized hang out in church, that sometimes uh, right, right, right here where Jesus is at work, there is often the presence of some darker, evil spirit to oppose what Jesus wants to do. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, put it like this. He said, look, wherever we discover life, somehow we discover this gone wrongness. Wherever there is a struggle for goodness, we discover, on the other hand, a powerful antagonism, something demonic, something that seems to bring our loveliest qualities to evil and our greatest endeavors to failure. And here in the synagogue in Capernaum, as Jesus gets up and is speaking all of this beautiful truth, an antagonistic dark spirit gets up and speaks. Now, in the ancient world, uh, demonization was common, as it is in many parts of the world today where there are animistic cultures. Uh, demonization is, is just real common. And, and in the world of Jesus, they had all kinds of uh, spells and amulets and uh, little incantations that they would use in order to try to ward off spirits. And they had their tricks. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, there's ancient you know, spells uh, or advice that you would take feces and take it to the nose of a demonized person to try to drive out the demon. In some darker ways, they would, they would sometimes drill a hole in the skull in order to let the spirit be released. And so they would use all kinds of tricks to get rid of the darkness because they were desperate. 
And uh, one of the ways in which you could gain a tactical advantage over your opponent if you were kind of doing some demonization is you would seek to name the opponent. And you know your friends who try to give you nicknames? You know what they're doing? They're trying to control you. They're trying to gain a tactical advantage. Watch out for those people. Um, but notice in the text, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, trying to gain a tactical advantage over Jesus, but it does not work. Notice the response. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And so Jesus, there is no magic tricks. There is no hocus pocus. Jesus speaks and the darkness trembles and the demon flees. And they were all amazed. They were first amazed at his teaching and the authoritative voice of this rabbi. And now they are amazed at his power. They, they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You remember we saw a couple weeks ago, Mark's thesis is that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not a name, it's a claim. It is a claim about the vocation and identity of Jesus. And the claim that Mark wants us to deal with is that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. He is God's king who carries God's authority in God's world. And here, using that authoritative voice, he speaks, and the darkness trembles. The demon runs, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Capernaum sat on a trade route, and on this trade route, news would spread quickly. And so news about Jesus is spreading quickly. So the synagogue service ends. And after all of this work, teaching, casting out demons, Jesus, the disciples, are hungry. You know, you're hungry after church, right? And so they go back to Simon and Andrew's house. Look at what it says. And immediately they left the synagogue and they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. So Simon and Andrew lived in probably fairly well-to-do quarters in Capernaum. Uh, they had a thriving fishing business. They were selling fish. They were making money. They were doing okay. And um, Simon and Andrew uh, likely lived in a little compound as they would in the ancient first century world of Jesus, where there might be four or five little dwelling places sort of connected together, a courtyard in the middle. And who would live in this compound? Well, you would live there with your uh, spouse and with uh, your siblings and their spouses and their kids and your mom and dad, and the in-laws would live there. Now, you, some of you would be like, that, that'd be great. And, um, but some, <laughs> my mother-in-law is watching. This would be so good. I would love this, Susie. Um, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. So they get home from church and Simon's mother-in-law is ill with a fever. It may indicate some malarial disease and it could be serious. It could take their life, it could be life-threatening. And um, so Jesus, the disciples come in and what does Jesus do? Immediately, they told him about her and he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. In the authoritative presence of Jesus, the darkness flees, and now the disease departs from her. And she began to serve them. 
The Southeast Asian scholar Kim Huat Tan sees her, uh, the mother-in-law of Peter, as a paradigm of discipleship. And get this, I like this. He writes, the rising of Peter's mother-in-law is analogous to the resurrection from spiritual death. And her immediate service to Jesus sets an example to believers as they are raised to serve. In other words, when Jesus touches you and transforms your life, he doesn't simply bring a, a, a transformation in your life to end with you so that through you, God might touch other people. And so his mother-in-law is raised to serve. Well, now uh, the sun is setting and now that the sun is down, Sabbath has come to a close. And so now the crowds can come out of their houses. They can travel, they can carry mats and they can carry the sick. And they all start surrounding the living quarters of Simon Peter. And look what it says. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. They had heard about what he did earlier in synagogue, and they all come and said, you can just imagine hundreds and hundreds of people crowding around the dwelling place of Simon and Andrew, and they're there on the front lawn, and they're crowding into the courtyard, and as many as can fit are squeezing into the house, and they have their mats with their sick loved ones there, and, and people who they've been desperate for years for somebody to help this person, and, and they bring them to Jesus, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus didn't want demons to be his PR, and so he silenced them. But look what happens next. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this sounds like kind of an exhausting day, doesn't it? I mean, most of you, you're ready for a nap just after church, and you didn't even preach. <laughs> I get home, I'm ready to crash. You know, I expend this energy. You know, there's the endorphin release. But Jesus also did battle with the darkness, and then he comes home and, and there's his sick mother-in-law and he's there with her. And then all of a sudden there's, there's uh, the crowds come in and, and just sick person after needy, uh, sometimes just people who are just being weirded out by demons, they're just coming him and they, they're coming to him and they all want something from him. And think about the emotional, the spiritual the physical toll that this is taking on Jesus's body, and it's just extracting from it. And no doubt, at the end of this long day, he's just exhausted. But look what happens. The next morning, it says this. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed." I was talking to my wife, Alicia, yesterday, and she had listened to this podcast, and it was all about contemplative prayer and the importance of deep, real prayer, time spent in the presence of God, and just how significant and important that is for us. And, and, and the, 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 the lady who was giving the, the teaching, she said, you know, um, she said, it doesn't take much. Uh, you don't need to be a hero. You don't need to do an hour. Maybe you just need five, 10 minutes. She said, but then if you're one of those people, you're like, I just can't even spare five minutes. She said, you probably need an hour. <laughs> you know, it, it, when you can be too busy not to pray. Um, or, or you can never be too busy not to pray, not too busy not to pray. I was just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> but listen, 
Here's Jesus expending all of this energy and he withdraws to his father to a desolate place and there he prayed. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus often withdrew to a quiet place. There he is in public with all of these people and there he is in private withdrawing to be with his father. Well, his prayer time is interrupted because Simon and those who are with him searched for him and they said, they said look, everyone is looking for you. You know, they, they wake up in the morning, they're groggy, they're wiping their sleep from their eyes, they're washing their face, they're like, where's Jesus? And they go out looking for him and there he is, there, there he is again, wandered off by himself and he's praying. And they're like, Jesus, now is your moment. You know, you're blowing up. Uh, they want to interview with New York Times. You know, they want you on Jimmy Kimmel. You know, you're just like, like he, he's so popular right now. And, and he's like, you got to come. And lo- notice what Jesus says. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You know, when I read that this week, I was thinking, what happened in that prayer? What happened when Jesus withdrew to be with his father? I think among other things, what Jesus was gaining was clarity. Clarity in the midst of all of these needs that are unending, which are the needs that the father is calling me to meet this day? Listen, you can't meet every need. Uh, there is no end of need around you. I remember um, I was in uh, a little country in West Africa about 20 years ago called Burkina Faso, and I was talking with this, uh, this Burkina Bay pastor, just brilliant, incredible leader. I was just like a little, you know, midget at his feet, you know, learning from him. And, um, and I just wanted to glean from him. And, and, um, and, and my wife and I had pulled together a little bit of money, and for us, it was a big deal. It was a couple thousand dollars, and we're like, we want to use this money to meet some need in Burkina Faso. And I remember asking Pastor Daniel Delma, I said, uh, what is the most significant need in Burkina Faso? And he said, look, it was the third poorest country in the world. He said, everything is significant need. He said, you need to pray to God and ask God, what would he put on your heart? What is the need he wants you to meet? You know, it can be paralyzing all of the need around us. How do you know what God wants you to step into? Well, Jesus models for us at least one way. We withdraw and we pray and we seek God. God, I know I can't meet everything, so what is the thing you want me to meet? So Jesus withdraws, he prays, and then he goes out with clarity. I must go to the next towns. It's interesting. They want him to simply sit there and perform miracles. But Jesus says, I must go to the next towns so that I can keep announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Now, in many ways, the little 24-hour block of time now ends. But Mark, interestingly, kind of tags on one more story that I want to draw your attention to. And Whereas he has been talking about the multitudes coming to Jesus, now he gives us one specific particular example of one of the kinds of needy people that came to Jesus, and it's a leper. Look at what it says. And a leper came to him, imploring him, 
kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. So he says, a leper came. What's leprosy? Well, many of you will know, it was a terrible skin disease. It was believed to be highly contagious, but it, was, it wasn't just a disease. It also made you in the ancient world socially as well as spiritually unacceptable because it would render you unclean. Now, for us in the modern world, that word unclean doesn't really make much sense to us, but in the ancient world, it was everything because if you were unclean, it meant that you couldn't be a part of the community. If you were unclean, it meant you couldn't go worship. And so it meant you were excluded. You were not welcome to worship God at the temple, and you were not welcome to go and be a part of the community. You were on the outside. And I think the closest thing we can imagine to this is back in 2020 when you got COVID, and you had to be in isolation, and you were alone. But just think about being in a life of isolation, not just two weeks. And this is leprosy. The lepers were the untouchables. They were the undesirables in society. And in this way, leprosy in the Bible becomes a picture of sin. Sin cuts us off from God. Sin cuts us off from our neighbors. And listen, when you hide, when you deceive, when you engage in coercive and controlling and maybe verbally abusive behavior towards others, it hurts your relationships. I don't need to tell you that, do I? You know that. And, and, and you kind of cower from God. Sin in this way is like leprosy. But on this occasion, the leper goes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing. Notice the question for the leper is not, are you able? He's heard the stories. He's seen people who went to him sick and came away healed. He knows Jesus is able. The question isn't, are you able? The question is, are you willing? And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I think in some ways what he's saying is, do you see me? Do you see what I'm going through? Can you sense my pain? And some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. You know there's a God. You know God can probably do all kinds of stuff. But does God care about you? Does God see you? And on this occasion, Jesus looks out at the leper and he says, I am willing, be clean. It says he was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. He said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This is significant that Jesus reached out and touched him because again, in the ancient world, if you touched a leper, you would contract their uncleanness. Their uncleanness would make you ceremonially unclean. And you would actually now be excluded from temple. You would be excluded from community. And here he reaches out and touches, or Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. But rather than the uncleanness of the leper making Jesus unclean, the cleanness and power of Jesus makes the unclean leper clean. And the leper is transformed and made clean by his power. And Jesus looked at him, and we think, strangely, he sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded you for a proof to him. Now, in our mind, we're like, what, what do you mean? It's sternly, why, why, why can't he go bear witness to all that Jesus had done? Well, probably because Jesus' popularity is going crazy right now, 
and he needs to kind of calm down the crowds. And so he says, look, keep this quiet, but go to the priest in Jerusalem. Why? Listen, because Jesus is not simply interested in his physical healing. Jesus wants to see him restored back into the life of the community. He wants to see him restored back in worship at the temple. And so he sent him to the priest to, be, to get his clean bill of health, you know, to get his, his clean COVID test, you know, and to come back. And then he could be welcomed back and be restored back into community. But sadly, he went out and began to talk freely about it. And he spread the news so that Jesus now could no longer openly enter a town but he was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. And our text ends. And what I wanna do is I wanna just stand back now and I wanna ask this question. You know, the first two weeks, if you'll remember, uh, in our series in the Gospel of Mark, we said that Mark is intent on demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited messianic king. Last week, we saw that Jesus came out to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom. And I think what this day in the life of Jesus does is it gives us a window into what the kingdom work of Jesus looks like six feet off the ground. And it's important for us to pay attention to this because we have been invited to bear witness to the kingdom. We have been invited to participate with Jesus in um, building towards the kingdom. We have, have been invited to be agents of God's kingdom. So what does it look like six feet off the ground to be engaged in kingdom work? And I want to just draw two observations about the kingdom work of Jesus from this text for us this morning. Number one, I want you just to notice that Jesus's kingdom work involves both word and deed. It involved both word and deed. What is Jesus's deed ministry all about? Or put it like this. Most of us, if I asked you, why did Jesus come to die? You would say, I know why Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die for our sins. But why did Jesus live? Like, why did he go about doing what he did day by day by day? What was his life all about? Listen, what Jesus was up to was putting to right stuff that's wrong in God's good world. Or put it like this, the world that we inhabit, and I don't need to tell you this, you know this already, the world you inhabit, your home, your neighborhood, your college campus, your place of employment, there's a lot of stuff that's good there, but it is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is not supposed to and was not intended by God to experience the kind of sickness and darkness and disease and demonization that is frequent in the world we inhabit. And so Jesus comes into this world, why? Jesus comes into this world to deal with what is broken and dark and wrong. He came to restore broken bodies. He came to restore broken lives. He came to bring freedom to people who are trapped and stuck. He came to, to, to welcome outcasts home. Jesus came into this world to do the work of restoration. Jesus came not only indeed doing the work of restoration, Jesus also came in word in order to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to bring hope 
where our hearts are hopeless. He came to speak God's grace where where we just feel stuck in our broken lives. Jesus came to bring the gospel of the kingdom in word and deed. The theologian Jurgen Moltmann put it like this. He said, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. You know, sometimes we think about miracles like that, like, oh, that's something fancy, you know, in our normal everyday world. No. He said, they are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. What Jesus came into the world to do was to set what is wrong in the world right. Jesus came in to heal those who are sick and broken. Jesus came to welcome outcasts home. This is why Jesus has come into the world. Jesus is exorcisms and his healings, they're giving us a little foretaste of ultimately what is to come, and they're showing us what he is inviting us to participate in. In other words, you and I are also invited to engage in the work and the deeds of the kingdom of God. Or put it like this, you know, I was, um, uh, this last couple weeks, my mother-in-law has not been living with us. She's... um, she has been in a care facility because she fell and she fractured a couple uh, tail or her tailbone and a couple um, uh, hip bones, I, I think. Anyway, she's in a lot of pain, and so she was in a care facility to bring, you know, to do physical therapy and whatnot. And you know, going there, there is a world of difference between a nurse that walks in and is an agent of care and kindness and really wants to see healing and a nurse that walks in and is unkind and is busy and just wants to get the job done, right? There's a world of difference between a manager. Uh, Last last couple weeks ago, we heard from uh, Susanna Castro about her business. Uh, She she has a little made pro business, and she talks about seeing her employees and, and, and wanting to pay attention to how they want to develop as individuals. There's a world of difference between a manager who simply wants you to make them look good and advance their career and a manager that's interested in you. There is a world of difference from a parent uh, who, who, who genuinely sets down the screens and fantasy football and watching another clip and uh, absorption in the news and actually attends to a child There's a world of difference in how we engage and show up in this world. And so the question, I just just wonder, are we as followers of Jesus showing up at work and at home and in the neighborhood as agents and as witnesses to this kingdom of Jesus that is all about bringing healing and restoration in this world? I know sometimes you can feel like, well, that's Jesus. You know, Jesus is healing people and he's casting out demons. I can't heal people. But maybe you can bring some healing into some life. You know, you say, I can't set anyone free, but maybe you can be a a participant in what they need in order to lead them to freedom from those addictions and those patterns. Maybe God can use you to be an agent and instrument in the kingdom of God. Dorothy Day, that great social activist, uh, said this. She said, people say, what is the sense of our small effort? 
They cannot see that we must lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. A pebble cast into a pond causes ripples that spread in all directions. And you know, there was a teacher in your life, there was a parent that spoke words that spread in directions in your life, right? There were people that stepped in and and did generosity and did kindness or worked toward justice on your behalf, and it spread ripples in all directions. And then she says this, each one of our thoughts, words, and deeds is like that. No one has a right to sit down and feel hopeless. There is too much work to do. So Jesus is at work in this world still by his spirit through our lives, and he invites us to be agents and instruments of his kingdom in all that we are, say, and do in all the different spheres of life. So number one, what are we seeing about the kingdom of God in action? Number one, we're seeing that it involves both our words and our deeds, and a church that is participants in the mission of God will engage in God's mission in both word and deed. But the second thing I want you to see in this text is this. Jesus' kingdom work involved both action and contemplation. Now, I think what's interesting is Mark in our passage, get this, he doesn't just give us a window into the kingdom ministry of Jesus, the exhausting work he was doing. Mark actually gives us a window into what made Jesus tick. He gives us a window into the lifestyle Jesus adopted that supported and sustained the exhausting and life-giving work that Jesus did. And what is a core aspect of the lifestyle of Jesus? Well, Jesus' life was marked by both action. I mean, he's casting out demons and teaching in synagogues and calling disciples and touching the lepers and, 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 and you know, raising up the, the, those fevered. And um, is that a word, fevered? And then he withdraws in prayer and contemplation to be with his father. And listen, unless we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus in this way by engaging in a rhythm of both action as well as contemplation, we will burn out in the work that Jesus has given us to do. Or we might become so overwhelmed by all the need out there that we'll just be paralyzed. Like, there's so much, what can I even do? Let's just watch another Netflix series, you know? You know, unless you engage in this rhythm that Jesus is instructing us into here, that he's modeling for us of both action and contemplation. And so I want to close out our time by um, inviting you to think of it like this. So think about this little diagram for a moment. I want to just invite you now to bring your life into this conversation, can you? And I want you to imagine in your own life, if we're going to take a 24-hour period in your day, Uh, Where would you fall on this little diagram? So um, at the top of the, this is an XY axis, isn't it? So at the top is a high action. And what we're talking about here is action toward the good. Like you're engaged in good healing work, speaking those words, doing, you know, sharing, opening up home, welcoming people in, doing what God has given you to do, high action. And then over here is a high contemplation. And then down at the bottom is low action, and over there is low contemplation. So think of it like this. 
If you have high action but low contemplation, you're going to burn out. And if you have high contemplation but very low action, you probably have a self-centered form of spirituality. You're kind of like those people that uh, John spoke about who uh, he said, look, what good does it have if, uh, or this is James, he says, he says if, if, you, if you're walking around saying, I love God, but you do nothing to, to meet the practical, real needs of your neighbor, how does the love of God abide in you with that? And so if you have high contemplation and low action, you probably have some kind of form of self-centered spirituality. If you have low action and low contemplation, you're probably bored, right? You probably have given into nihilistic despair. Um, and some of you have. Like, you, you spend very little, if any, time with God, and your soul just feels so thin. And, and, and there's very real stuff that comes out of your life that benefits and serves anyone outside of yourself. And so the way you're inhabiting the life, even if you have a lot of money and a lot of vacations and a lot of me time, you can just walk around feeling bored. But if you have high action and high contemplation, well, you are beginning to live into something of the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what we see in a 24-hour period of Jesus' life. He is both high action and high contemplation. And so I just wanted to ask you, as you evaluate your own life, and this might be a useful little X, Y axis for you to take home and spend some time thinking about your own life and day and say, where do I fit on this? And then here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to give you something very specific and concrete and practical. So this week, we uh, begin the season of Lent on the church calendar. And uh, we have a Ash Wednesday service, which we're going to invite you all to come out to. It's, if you've never been to our Ash Wednesday service, come. It is great. And it's kind of depressing, but it's also good. Um, a good kind of sad, right? Um, uh, Ash Wednesday confronts us with our own mortality and death. It's the counterpart to Easter Sunday where we celebrate God's victory over death. And in between is the season of Lent. And traditionally on the church calendar, uh, Christians have, invite, have been invited to do some self-reflection during Lent and to ask, like, how am I living and what does my life with God really look like? And how am I spending my time and my days and my thoughts and my resources and my gifts? Like, do some introspection. And then during Lent, we're invited to uh, put something off and to put something on. Uh, traditionally, the church has been invited into a, a period of fasting during Lent, where maybe you put off something that's sort of destructive in your life. You've been drinking a little too many nights during the week, so you put off alcohol, you know, or, or you've just been uh, spending way too much time on social media, and so you give up Instagram and uh, TikTok during Lent or something like this. But then you give yourself to a practice that you want to cultivate in your own life that will help you develop your own life with God. 
And we do this modeling after Jesus who went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. We engage in a practice over a short period of time to hopefully develop a new practice over a long space of our life. And so I just want to invite you, you know, in this next uh, few days, as you move toward the beginning of Lent, to, to just reflect, is there a contemplative practice I need to put on? Is there maybe some action I need to engage in, you know, going volunteering down at the rescue mission once a week or something like this that's going to cultivate something in you, in your own heart, that helps you move closer into the direction of the way of Jesus? So I want to leave you with that. And this week, uh, actually today, if you're signed up for our A Year with Jesus, uh, you'll get a little... uh, uh, review of today's talk. You'll get a series of readings for this week, and you'll also get uh, some introspective questions that you can ask. And if you're not signed up for that, if you haven't been getting that little weekly devotional, uh, go ahead. There's little cards in the pews in front of you. You can take one of those out, put your name, give us your email, and just let us know that you want to receive that weekly newsletter. Just write weekly newsletter or weekly um, devotional. I'm looking over at Ryan. He's going to tell me and we'll get you signed up there. So does that sound good? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves in this world, that you have sent your son Jesus so that we, like the leper, can be healed from our brokenness and sin. We thank you that in Christ, you have borne our sin and shame and you've brought it to an end so that we can be restored back into worship and back into life in the community of faith. And Jesus, we thank you that you have also given us a model of how to live well in this world. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to take seriously this week a call to self-examination. And we just pray that you would be speaking to us and giving us clarity. And I pray, God, that, um, yeah, that you would use this, God, to bring about needed change in our life. And we ask all of these things in the great and in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.